morning. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 50. We will begin at verse 15. If you're using the blue Bibles in the P-Rack in front of you, you'll find this on page 52. Genesis chapter 50, beginning at verse 15. As you turn there, this morning we're going to look at one of the most important texts in Scripture, examine one of the foundational doctrines of the Christian faith. And the purpose of all of this is edification, that we may understand who God is and stand in awe of the goodness of our God and the salvation of sinners. We will find the gospel in this text. We'll see how Joseph is really a type of Christ. Let me pray. Lord, we confess that this truth is a hard truth. We struggle to embrace it. Lord, I ask you to give me clarity to communicate your truth. Lord, feed your people and help me to point them to Jesus. Genesis 50, beginning at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and for your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. These are the words of Almighty God. And so we say, thanks be to God. This sermon comes out of a time of reflection I had recently as I thought about a very difficult spiritual crisis that I had in my life. This was years ago. All the details would be a different sermon entirely. But this is about what I learned from it and what I wish I'd understood before. I'm going to kind of front load the assertions that I will make before you this morning. The statement I'll set before you this morning is this. I'll begin with a question and then I'll give you a thought to ponder for a moment. The question is this, why should you trust God? And the statement is this. The statement I will set before you this morning is a commitment to the sovereignty of God as He governs in the affairs of men is not simply an idea that you can take it or leave it, but that it is in fact a gospel essential. And I do mean to say that if you do not have this understanding that God is, in fact, sovereign over his creation, you don't have the gospel because you will be easily uprooted 
you'll find yourself lacking in some of the best gifts that he gives to his people. Furthermore, I want you to see how this doctrine is for the building up and edifying of the saints. So Joseph's brothers are recognizing a change in their situation and it frightens them. Now that daddy's dead, Joseph has an opportunity to really let us have it. They sold him into slavery all those years ago and they really wish they could have that one back about this time because now he's become the most powerful man on earth and surely we're done for. Before we go too far down this road, we should probably consider what it, what, what it is that makes these brothers so afraid of what may happen. Indulge me for a moment, I know most of you know the story, but uh, I'm going to recall um, to your mind just briefly the, 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 the rundown of events. You'll recall that Joseph is the son of Jacob, Israel as God named him, the one who wrestled with God. Joseph was Jacob's favorite son, the son of his old age, we are told. And as such, Jacob gives Joseph this coat of many colors that Joseph loved. Well, his brothers are not impressed. When Joseph begins to have these dreams, he dreams that his brothers are bowing down before him. And Joseph can't wait to tell his brothers about these dreams that he's had. And at this point, for the brothers, that's it. They will not endure any more of this. They hate Joseph. They eventually sell Joseph to a band of slave traders. Joseph winds up in Egypt. The brothers go on to convince their father that Joseph is dead. They present his coat of many colors dipped in animal blood and give it to Jacob. Jacob weeps, mourns the loss of his son, while the brothers keep their mouths shut concerning Joseph's true fate. Meanwhile, Joseph is enslaved to Potiphar the captain of the guard in Egypt, a powerful man. Joseph shows himself very competent, so he's given to manage all of Potiphar's household until one day when Potiphar's wife sets her eyes on Joseph and begins to entice him to sleep with her. Joseph refused, and eventually, having been scorned by Joseph, she makes up this story about Joseph trying to take advantage of her, and Joseph is thrown into prison. He ends up in prison with Pharaoh's chief baker and cupbearer, Joseph interprets the dreams of these two individuals. The cupbearer ends up being restored to the service of Pharaoh. And two years later, the cupbearer remembers Joseph at the time when Pharaoh is troubled by his own dreams. Joseph is brought in to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh. And at this point, Joseph is restored. He's elevated to prime minister in all, over all Egypt. And as a result of his interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams, then the terrible famine hits the land of Canaan and Jacob sends his sons to Egypt to buy food. When they get there, they have to go before none other than Joseph. Joseph recognizes them, but they do not recognize him. Eventually, Joseph is reunited to his brothers. They end up bringing Jacob and all their families to dwell in the land of Goshen in order to be restored to Joseph and to survive the famine, which still had another five years to go at this point. And this is how the Israelites came to sojourn in Egypt. So now that Jacob is dead, the brothers recognize that perhaps Joseph has been going along to get along out of respect for his father. So they're afraid that Joseph will exact his revenge on them for all that they did to him. So they send this message to Joseph. You know, we and your father think it'd be really cool if you didn't kill us, 
In their message to Joseph, they acknowledged their evil. They acknowledged that they did evil to him. Boy, did they. They had perpetrated one of the most wicked acts of treachery and betrayal in human history. They took their brother, who they thought was a little too arrogant for his own good, and sold him into slavery. Go on as though nothing ever happened, letting their father grieve the loss of his son all those years till the tables really turn on him. We cannot say whether this message demonstrates repentance or if it simply says, sorry, we got caught, like a fear of punishment type of repentance. Either way, Joseph is moved by it. Many of you are familiar with this story backward and forward. You've seen it a hundred times. You've read your Bibles over and over. Let me ask you a question. This message from the brothers, please forgive the transgression of your brothers. Does this sound like something Jacob ever said to the brothers? Not at all. If you've looked at the chapter before, chapter 49, not at all. There's no evidence that Jacob ever said such a thing. In fact, we're given the opposite. If Jacob were to express his opinion on the matter, he probably would have encouraged Joseph to handle business because they deserve it. In chapter 49, Jacob gives these last words to each of his sons individually. And uh, he doesn't have a lot of nice things to say about them. So it seems as if the brothers came up with this statement simply to avoid what they believe to be their fate. Like, uh, okay, okay, guys, surely Joseph will have us killed now that dad is gone. What are we going to do? They try to appeal to their father. What do we make of this? The brothers do seem to understand the nature of their problem. Now that Jacob is gone, what stops the prime minister from killing us? I mean, there would be no repercussion to Joseph killing his brothers in this case. They rightly understood that they were in his hands. What they did not understand is that Joseph was in God's hands. Their plan here kind of reminds me of the story of the prodigal son. They say, we are your servants. We will serve you, just please don't kill us. The prodigal son had come to the end of himself. He goes to his father, make me like one of your slaves. I don't have to be a son. I just want to be with you again. The father's not having it. This is nonsense. You are my son, and I will treat you as such. Joseph says the same thing. Nonsense. You are my brothers. I will provide for you and your families. Joseph simply forgives them. He says, I'm not in the place of God. You did evil to me. You meant evil toward me. I suffered a terrible injustice at your hands, but I'm not in the place of God. See, Joseph had come to understand something. That is, his brothers were not the only ones acting in the play. See, in some sense, you could say that Joseph is in the place of God. God had sent him to Egypt to save lives. That is how Joseph understood the situation. When Joseph is restored to his brothers in chapter 45, he says, God sent me ahead of you. To save lives, God has elevated him to this position, and he knows it. He has the right to execute justice in this case and avenge all the malicious and terrible deeds that were perpetrated against him. He's got a rock-solid case here. It's no big deal for a man in his position to legally hand down a death sentence. But he chooses to lay aside his right to vengeance. and chooses mercy. Who else do you know who lays aside his rights and chooses 
to be merciful. Who else but the Lord Jesus? Did you think you were Joseph in the story? <laughs> you, you were the brothers. You were the ones who went about in high-handed rebellion against the holiness of God. And the one you offended, the one you rebelled against, died on a cross to bring you near. So if you are the brothers coming in your sin and begging for mercy, then who is Joseph? Joseph is Jesus. This is the gospel of your salvation. That's what it means to say that Joseph is a type of Christ. Joseph says, as for you, you meant it for evil. You meant evil. It was not an accident. You meant every bit of it. You bear your guilt. They truly are responsible for their evil before God. Joseph does not give them the out here. Joseph understood that God was at work in their decisions. So now can the brothers just say, well, Joseph, are you mad at us? You're just doing God's will. No, Joseph doesn't give them the out. He understood that they were truly responsible for their actions and that God was at work in their actions at the same time. What Joseph is telling us in this text is that the brothers had an evil intent when they sold him to slave traders. And he's also acknowledging that God had a righteous intent in selling Joseph to slave traders. So were the brothers carrying out their own evil intentions? Yes. And was God at work in the evil decisions made by the brothers? Yes. Was it part of the plan? Yes. At this point, we have to address the 10-ton elephant in the room. What about human free will? If God is sovereign, how can man be free? There's one line of argumentation that goes back to the 20th century philosopher named Jean-Paul Sartre. I think I said that right. <laughs> I will use Sartre because uh, I think he does a fine job of summing up the problem. Sartre was an atheist who reasoned that a free man and a sovereign God cannot both exist. If man is truly free, then God is not sovereign, and if God is sovereign, then man cannot be free. In some sense, he is right about that. So my next question would be, what do we mean by free? Sartre would define freedom as autonomy. Autonomy coming from the ancient Greek, auto meaning self, nomos meaning law, self-law, the ability to govern oneself apart from outside influence. So does the Bible teach that man is free in the sense of autonomy? Well, clearly not. We see this in the very beginning. You can eat of any of the trees of the garden except for this one tree. Man was given a law outside of himself. It was imposed on him by his creator. You are free to eat of any of the trees except for this one tree. You are not free to eat of this particular tree, and if you do, then you will die. So if man is not free in the sense of autonomy, is he free in any sense? Yes. He was free to act, to choose between this tree or that one over there or that one over there, but his freedom is limited. 
He's not ultimately free. God is the only one who is ultimately free. The Bible teaches that man makes real and authentic choices that are born from his desires, that he's acting in accordance with his own will, and that he bears all the responsibility for his choices. At the same time, the Bible teaches that God is at work behind the free choices of man and that he is accomplishing all his good pleasure. The question at issue here, from what we've just examined, is the choices of man, where they come from. Martin Luther wants to go a little bit further back. Martin Luther would go a little further upstream from the choices and talk about human will. Luther wrote a book on this called On the Bondage of the Will. In this book, he assumes that man always acts in accordance with his desires. Seems self-evident. Man always does what it is that he wants to do. Luther would argue that that the action is happening at this level is in the nature of the human will. Luther would carry his doctrine of total depravity to the question and say that man always acts in accordance with his own will and that his will is enslaved to sin. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, and that natural will, unaffected by the work of the Holy Spirit, is bent towards sin. It is only once the human will is acted upon by the Holy Spirit that he can be free from this bent towards sin. In fact, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit changes the will, the desires. It reorders the loves of man toward pleasing God. The relationship between the sovereignty of God and the will of man is not the only reason people struggle with this text. Many Christians are uneasy with the idea of God working out His will in the wickedness of man. I want to be clear, God is not the author of sin, and He bears no responsibility for the wickedness of man. I can't say it any clearer than our confession from the Westminster Confession of Faith. God, from all eternity, did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. I've heard some preachers express a denial of God's sovereignty on the grounds that God cannot be seen working in the midst of human suffering and misery. They they argue that God can have nothing to do with that, so they elevate Satan as being so powerful as to disrupt God's will. So they would hold that God wants all things to be good and orderly and always pleasant, but Satan keeps thwarting his plans. There's a serious problem here. If Satan has a measure of control over what God is able to accomplish, then where does that leave us? Your salvation is the work of God. So could your salvation be stolen? Can God endeavor to save you out of your sin and fail? This is why I asked you the question in the beginning, why should you trust God? So can God endeavor to save you out of your sin and fail? I think these texts will answer that question for us. 
1 Corinthians 1, 7 and 8, you are not lacking in any good gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus. Philippians 1, 6, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He began it, and he will complete it. Seeing it through is his department. It's not up to you or Satan or anybody else. He promises to save you, and you can trust in his promises. This is saving faith, and it is the gift of God. So Joseph does not absolve them of their guilt. He doesn't tell them it's okay because God was at work. He maintains that they are guilty before God. But then he says, but God meant it for good. Indeed, he meant it, not in a passive sense, but that God was actively involved in their, in their decisions, that God was accomplishing salvation. God was at work the whole time. Doing what? Well, no jealous brothers, no Potiphar. No Potiphar, no Potiphar's wife, no Potiphar's wife, no cupbearer, chief baker, no chief baker, no cupbearer, no opportunity, to, no opportunity to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, no opportunity to interpret the dreams, no recourse during the terrible famine, no recourse during the famine, Israel dies. Israel dies, no slavery in Egypt, no slavery in Egypt, no exodus, no exodus, no Ten Commandments. What about the nation of Israel? No nation, no nation of Israel, no kings, no prophets. You will see all of this was the bringing of the kingdom of heaven. In the injustice that marked so much of Joseph's life, God was bringing about his kingdom. A couple thousand years later, all of these events are going to bring us to a manger in Bethlehem. It was these events that brought us there. The manger in Bethlehem is going to bring us to Golgotha, where evil men conspired together to murder the Son of God. And when these evil men conspired together, we are told that they are doing God's will. Isaiah 53, Acts 4, 27. For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It was the most evil act in the history of the world. Mankind finally got their hands on God and they killed him. And what did Peter and John tell us? They were simply doing God's will. Does that mean they're not guilty? Of course not. They made real choices in their rebellion against God. They bear their guilt. They sinned and they wanted to sin. But God was at work accomplishing the salvation of his people. God was at work in the midst of their wickedness accomplishing the salvation of his people. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Indeed, it was truly evil. And yet God meant it for good. Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose... For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul does not tell us that all things are good. Indeed, Joseph's brothers were wicked. Joseph suffered injustice. Many of you have suffered injustice at the hands of wicked men. Jesus suffered at the hands of Herod and Pontius Pilate. Wicked men. Yet God is working all things together for good. For the good of his people. Those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Have you suffered in this life? Of course you have. I've known many of you for a long time. And uh, I wouldn't trade lives with some of you for all the riches in all the world to bear the burdens you've had to bear in this life. No, thank you. But in the midst of it all, God is accomplishing your glorification, conforming you to the image of His Son. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. What is that faith? It simply means trust. But I asked you, why should you trust Him? When He promises to be your God and to save you from all of your sins, why should you trust Him? As we're told in Romans 8, that He predestined you to be conformed to the image of His Son. And He's demonstrated that He is able to do that. He was at work in the background of Joseph's life, from the pit to the prison to the courts of Pharaoh governing all those events of Joseph's life for the good of his people. The sovereign God of all the universe was working in the life of Joseph and he is working in your life to bring you to himself guiltless on the day of Christ Jesus. When we try to sidestep the stickiness of the doctrine of God's sovereignty, we step into big problems. It goes like this. Well, if you believe in a sovereign God, then you have to believe that he was involved in the Holocaust. Right. That's exactly right. And if you don't believe in a sovereign God, then you have to believe in a Holocaust without any purpose, that it was purely meaningless evil then you have to believe that human evil is catching God by surprise, that God is not bringing history to a glorious conclusion, but that he's simply putting out fires, as it were. No, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. You may never understand the purpose of your suffering. You may not live to see it. It may be that you were suffering so that your great-great-great-grandchildren would be blessed. This is a matter of the secret will of God. Deuteronomy 29, 29. These are the things that we're not given to know or understand. Sometimes we live long enough to see our trials, the things we endure, turn out for our good. Other times we simply don't. But the things revealed to us and to our children, I'm sorry, the things revealed to us belong to us and to our children forever. Those things, 
that are revealed, you know them as the promises of God, and they are ours in Christ. In a moment, we'll come to this table. We will see the promises of God made visible for us. Your Lord Jesus invites you to meet him here where he dispenses his grace to you, continuing to sustain your soul until that day when faith becomes sight, you no longer need a mediator. So come to the Lord Jesus and lay hold the promise. It is for you. In the name of Jesus. O oh Lord, God of heaven and earth. We thank you that you were working the lives in our lives, bringing history to a conclusion. A conclusion in which all of your enemies are under your feet and our sin is a distant memory. Lord, you alone are able to do it. And I ask that you would give these people the faith to trust in your promises to see that you were able to fulfill every one of them. Lord, thank you for the glorious promise of the gospel, the miracle of our sanctification, that you were pleased to work in the lives of all your people. We ask you now that as we come to this table, that you would give us that gift of repentance to forsake our sin and cling to the cross. And that we would truly receive that grace that you offer around your table and find it satisfying for our souls. I ask you once again that you forgive all of our sin for Jesus' sake. Amen.